When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I am delighted to talk to Joshua Sijuadi. You are most welcome, sir. Thank you very much for having me, Paul. I really appreciate you inviting me on. Thank you. My pleasure. Now, Joshua is a visiting lecturer at the London School of Theology, uh, an institution formerly known as the London Bible College here in London, which is one of the largest evangelical theological colleges in Europe. He gained a PhD from the University of York on the metaphysics of the Trinity. His research interests fall into the area of uh, metaphysics, philosophy of religion, and philosophical theology. He has engaged in respectful dialogue with Muslim thinkers, such as Jake, the Muslim metaphysician. Today, Joshua will be speaking about an important topic in Christian theology, monarchical trinitarianism it's quite a quite a mouthful monarchical trinitarianism so would you like to introduce us to this subject joshua yeah that's great thank you um so yeah we're i'm gonna sort of break down this sort of weird sort of titled uh, understanding of the trinity but hopefully over the time of our discussion uh, the audience are gonna understand a little bit more about it and also the historical grounding of the approach to sort of understand that actually it presents a a view of the Trinity that I would argue and others have argued is actually the historical understanding of the Trinity that you find at the councils. And also it's a view of the Trinity that I would say is philosophically coherent. So it doesn't have sort of that, those logical problems that some other views have. Um, so to sort of walk people through it, um, I'd yeah. like to just go through sort of a, I think a presentation will help Fantastic. Uh, just to yeah sort of break it down and sort of help people understand it further. I don't know if you can see it. Yeah. Hopefully you can. Very clearly. Um, yeah, so I'm just sort of going to just break down first what I take to be the nucleus of the Christian doctrine of the Trinity and then further break down how the interpretation offered to this doctrine by monarchical Trinitarianism sort of can be understood. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah, just understanding about the Trinity. Uh, we normally understand the Trinity to be the idea that there are three persons, so three persons who are termed the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, each of these persons are understood to be God, yet there is only one God. And so that's sort of the general idea. There are these three persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, consubstantial. That means they share the same nature. And so each of them are called God, yet there is only one God. And so some people look at this and say, well, how can we seemingly square this circle? Because it seems to be saying that there are three persons, 
who are each gods. So should we say there are three gods there? But they're also trying to affirm, some will say Christians are trying to affirm this idea of monotheism, that there is only one God. Now, I believe that monarchical Trinitarianism allows people to actually affirm this in a way that there is no sort of, as I said before, logical incoherence. Um, you don't have to um, you know, try and delve into really deep philosophy to actually understand what these terms are. And I believe um, also it is the expression of the Niceno-Constantinopolitan creed that you find at 381. So that's really the grounding of Trinitarianism. If I could just clarify at one point, you said the Niceno-Cosmopolitan yes. Council. You're talking here yes. a council, this is a gathering of bishops in the in the fourth yes. century AD in what is now the Mediterranean world. And they, and they, they came to various decisions about who God was. So yeah, it's yes. an early, early council. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. So, yeah, I think it's good just to yeah further sort of develop that point. So, yeah, you have for for Christians, we obviously have the Bible as being authoritative. It's understood to be the word of God. Right. Um, but for a lot of other Christians, so Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox and maybe some Anglicans, there will also be an authority that's found in the conciliar declarations. And what I mean by that is the declarations that were presented to the church by certain councils. And these councils were understood to be ecumenical councils, firstly, because they were called by the emperor. Um, so it had the authoritative stamp of the emperor legally, but also because it was a gathering of people would say the leaders of the church, so the bishops right. um, or the patriarchs, they were gathered together to sort of debate about certain matters and then come to sort of an agreement on the issue and then pr um, produce a declaration so a creed, which then stated the, the sort of agreement that was reached. And so what we have really first, we have the, the Nicene Creed, which is the famous sort of one you hear, which was produced at the Council of Nicaea in 325, uh, which dealt, dealt with uh, the issue of Arianism and other sort of uh, liturgical issues. Um, but you had sort of Arianism and Arius being condemned at the council. And then you had later on at 381, you had the Council um, of Constantinople, where, again, you had the same issue of, it wasn't Arianism, because as yourself and your audience who are sort of well-read on the issue will know, Arianism wasn't really that much of a big issue. Um, it's sort of been blown, uh, it sort of got um, highlighted so much by uh, Athanasius, so that everyone was called Arian, Arian, Arian. But Arius did not actually play a major role in the fourth century. Um, he did sort of, he was the, I would say, the, the match that sort of lit things at the beginning. But then you really had other issues that were popping up. Um, and one of the main people at the latter half of the fourth century uh, was Eunomius, um, who played a big role in Aetius. And in 381, a lot of the, the fathers who played sort of a big role, and when I, sorry, when I say fathers, I mean sort of the oh, yes. important yeah. bishops, um, so people like the Cappadocian fathers, um, so you have Basil, uh, who died before the council, and then you had Gregory of Nazianzus and Gregory of Nyssa. Nazianzus actually playing a big role and then leaving the council, um, and then Nyssa playing some sort of role as well. Um, so you have these, these fathers who were battling with Eunomius and other um, individuals, and then you had this council being called to sort of declare what is the church's position on this matter. Right. And so one of the key issues was the doctrine of the Trinity, yeah. the consubstantiality of the, of the Son with the Father, but also the understanding of what is the nature of the Spirit. And so, 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 add, so, so, so just to clarify, consubstantiality yeah. meaning is a Latin word meaning of the same substance, the same being. Yes, yeah, same yeah. Essence, exactly. Somehow, yeah. It's a technical yes, yeah, term yeah. that 
Christian theologians use to, uh, that they always use. So I just want to clarify that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Thank you very much for that. So yeah, consubstantial, or some people might hear the word homoousios, which is just the Greek sort of word for that saying, yes, they share the same nature, same substance, same essence. Um, And that was sort of uh, dealt with at at, uh, Nicaea, then at Constantinople. And then there was an extension of that to the spirit to understand that the spirit is also consubstantial with the father and the son. So, yeah, so by, by 381, we have what we sort of see at the PowerPoint here, that there are these three persons, father, son, and Holy Spirit, each of them are equally termed God. So there's not a lacking in divinity of any of the persons, but yet there is still an affirmation that there is only one God. And so we're not trying to divert from monotheism. So the issue that Christians face is, well, how do we understand this? How can there be one God, yet there are three persons who are called God as well? And I believe monarchical Trinitarianism provides a way of understanding that. But like I said before at the beginning, I don't believe it's a new new sort of theory, new idea. I just think it's a rediscovery of what actually uh, um, the Council of Constantinople was trying to express. So yeah, what I'm going to do now is just sort of break it down and and, um, yeah, please do at any point um, if I am. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Not being as clear as I could be, just um, please, yeah push back on me and, and let me be clearer. Uh, so, okay. Um, before we sort of jump into uh, the heart of the, the theory, um, there's something that I, I think I need to highlight at the beginning. And that's basically uh, the ambiguity that surrounds the word God. And this is not just in a Trinitarian context. I would say it's in any sort of theological context that utilizes the word God. It's quite clear that God is a, it's an ambiguous word. Um, it can mean more than one thing and it can be applied to more than one thing. And that can, that's obviously the case because we have many other theistic religions that apply the word God to different types of entities. 
And so, well, specifically in a, in a I would say in a Christian theological uh, case, there are at least two ways in which the word God can be used or two senses. So I would say the first way is that the word God can be used in a predicative sense. In a sort of a predicative sounds a little bit weird. Um, it's a sort of philosophical way of just saying in an adjectival sense, as an adjective. Right. So the word God can be used as an adjective for something. And what I mean by that is it's basically describing an entity. And the way it's describing it is by ascribing a certain property. So an entity is called God in this predicative sense, because this entity has the property of divinity. Now, what I mean by the property of divinity, I just mean all the properties that we take to be great making properties. So an entity is divine if it's all powerful or knowing, omnipresent or loving and all those sort of attributes. And so what I'm saying is that the first way that the word God can be understood as is as a predicate for a being. And the being is rightly called God in that predicative sense if it has the divine nature, if it is all powerful or knowing and all loving. Okay, but then the second way that the word God can be used is in what I call the nominal sense. And that's just in a, let's say, more um, easy way of saying it. It's using the word God as a noun, as a proper noun. It's using it as a name for something. So what we have here is that the word God can be used, firstly, as I said before, as a predicate. So saying a being is God is just saying it's divine. Or the word God can be used as a name for something. And so it names a certain being. But I would say, and I believe that's what, and I would say even with this point, I would say other religions outside of Christianity will affirm this, that the being who is called God, who bears that name, and in Greek would say hotheos, the God, is the being who is ultimate, who is fundamental, and this being is ultimate fundamental. And what I mean by that is this being, let's say we have reality being structured. At the bottom level of reality is this being that we call God. Everything ultimately depends upon this being. And this being does not depend upon anything. It is uncaused independence, arse. It has arseity. So. Yeah, I would say the word God used as a name for a being is only for a being who is, I say, the fundamental divine person. So a being has God as a name in the nominal, so it has the word God in the nominal sense, if it has two things, as I just said, ultimacy, so it's ultimate slash fundamental, and it is divine. So, for example, if... um. So just to clarify this, if, for example, we took a physical, we took a scientific view and let's say we didn't assume theism and we went with, let's say, a naturalist view mm. and let's say the bottom level of real reality are quarks. Okay. These scientific um, sort of particles, uh, physical particles that they are, let's say they are the ultimate things that explain everything else. Mm. Why they won't be God even though they have ultimacy, is because they lack that second part. They lack divinity. They're not divine. So to be God, you in the nominal sense, you have to have two things. You are ultimate, you are fundamental, and you are divine. That means you have all the divine properties, all powerful, all knowing, all loving, and, all, and so on and so forth. And so just uh, to let people understand, 
What I'm trying to say here is that we need to disambiguate the word God, because I think when people try and encounter the Trinity, they come in with a preconception of what they mean by the word God, even mm. though it's an ambiguous word. And I'm saying if we're going to understand the Trinity better, we need to disambiguate it in line with what Trinitarians affirm. And what I would say Trinitarians affirm in the historical sense is that they affirm that there are different ways in which we use the word God. It can either be used in a predicative sense when it's referring to a being who's divine, or it can be used in a nominal sense as a name for a certain being who is fundamental and divine. Okay, so hopefully so, people are understanding. Can I just clarify? Thank you for that. Can I just clarify a couple of things? So uh, in the Bible, as, as you know better than I, I'm sure that there are beings, entities other than Yahweh, uh, the God of Israel, who are called God, including yeah. um, the king in Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7, who's directly addressed as Elohim, God, literally, in the English translations. Moses as well, and, and yeah. Isaiah chapter 9, the song of yes. Hezekiah, etc., etc. So um, merely the Bible itself, in, in, in a positive way, because these are not seen as aberrations, these are expressions of uh, um, uh, a theological understanding. But that these words, these designations, Elohim or God in English, are not um, synonymous with, not the same as the, your, your two characterized or descriptions of God yeah. in that fundamental sense that you're yes. giving. So there is yeah. this ambiguity. I'm just, in a sense, reinforcing your point about the ambiguity of the word God in the yeah. Bible, at least. There is this kind of um, equivocal understanding of the word God, which yeah. I find a little bit confusing because we all, yes. so when someone says God, I say, well, what do you mean by God? You know, yeah. what do you mean? You know, because it's not yeah. obvious. It's not always obvious. Um, yeah. To me anyway. Yeah, yeah. anyway, thank you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Thank you for that. And what I would emphasize here is that what I'm saying is that there are at least two um, ways of understanding, but there are definitely more, as you were saying. So when you go through the Bible, maybe the word God is applied to, let's say, a human being, but then it would they wouldn't fall into either of these two categories. But like you said, yeah, it's just um, emphasizing the ambiguity of it. But what I would say in the context of understanding the Trinity, there are at least two ways, but there are definitely more than, than that um, okay. in the way that it can be applied. Yeah, so there's this ambiguity. We disambiguated it in the Trinitarian context by saying God in the pred predicative sense and God in the nominal sense. Okay, so sort of that with, with that in hand, we can then understand monarchical Trinitarianism um, better, I believe. Okay. So um, what I then would say is that what we saw before in, in the, the previous slide was just the breakdown of the Trinity. Three persons, Father, Son, Spirit, each are God, yet there is one God. And now this is just sort of an expansion of it within a monarchical Trinitarian context. So what we still affirm is that, yes, there are three persons. And now I'm not, with, with monarchical Trinitarianism, there is not a specific way someone must understand the persons. So for those of your, your listeners and, and, and the audience, um, they might know about social, uh, understand about social Trinitarianism, Latin Trinitarianism. Now, yeah. at the moment, it's not so important what the persons are or how we understand them, if they are in a social sense or a Latin sense. Yeah. Um, but just generally here, we're just saying that there are three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and it doesn't really matter what we mean by the term person at the moment. Okay. So three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And then sort of breaking this down in the way I would take it is that each of the persons, each of these three persons exemplify the same essential intrinsic property of divinity. So 
when we say that each of these persons are God, so just sort of jumping to that, the third point there, when we are saying each of the persons are God in the predicative sense, what we are basically just saying is that each of them have the property of divinity. So there is one property of divinity that is exemplified by each of them. What I mean by exemplification is just possessed by them. So the father possesses this one property, the son possesses it, and the Holy Spirit possesses it as well. Um, and so because they each equally possess this one self-same property, we can then equally predicate to them the word God. Because if we remember before, a being is God in the predicative sense if it has the property of divinity. So the Father has the property of divinity, so does the Son, so does the Spirit. So each of them are God in the predicative sense of the word, the Father, Son, and Spirit. Mm. And so when we were in the, the previous slide, e saying each of them are God, it's just saying each of them are God in the predicative sense, Father, Son, and Spirit, because they each have this property of divinity. Now, um, for your sort of audience, it's not so important again about, I, I did state their same essential intrinsic property of divinity, but breaking down what we mean essential and intrinsic is not overly important. Um, but it's just the key thing to say they each have the same property. So it's not like the father has his own different property of divinity than the son and the spirit. They all exemplify the same property. And the way you can understand it is as a universal. So uh, for example, um, I might have a certain, let's say, color of skin brown, and a table has another, has the, the color brown. We exemplify the self-same property because there's only one brownness, which is a universal, which is then exemplified individually by myself and by um, that, the, the table. So all I'm saying is that they have the same property, the same property, and so that allows them to be homoousios. So this consubstantiality and homoousios which is between each of the persons, is had because they have the same property. So just to clarify, so using two words here, consubstantial is a Latin word, homoousios is a Greek yes. word, and they mean exactly the same thing. Uh, but the reason you're citing them is because th this is the jargon that is used in yeah. what's called historical theology, when academics yeah. look at the, the doctrines of the early fathers, fathers meaning the early leaders of the church, the bishops and theologians. Yeah. This is the jargon they use. It's not some kind of... It's not, you know, it's like in science, you get these technical terms. It's just a language yeah. of theology, but it means the same thing. It means the same essence, the same being, the, yeah. uh, the, the properties, the three persons exemplify, as you say, the same yeah. essences or um, yeah. being substance. Yes. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. The, so when you are sort of, for, for those who, who will read the fourth century fathers and, um, and scholars on the matter, uh, they would, yeah, encounter the word homoousion and consubstantial. But yeah, um, the way I'm, what I'm doing then is just providing an interpretation of it. So yeah. what does it mean for the son to be homoousios with the father? All I'm saying is that they exemplify the self-same property. And that interpretation myself actually won't, it's not original with me, but it's actually something you'll find in Gregory of Nyssa. Um, you'll find in the Cappadocians uh, where they sort of try and understand what does it mean for the for the sun to be homoousios. They will use this language of universals um, and all those sort of things. So it's just sort of clarifying what we mean there. The sun shares the nature of the father and so does the spirit because they exemplify the same property as him. Okay, so each of them are God in the predicative sense because of their possession of the one property of divinity. 
However, and this is sort of, I mean, everything we've said here is, is generally what's always been, a, you know, understood for a lot of Trinitarians. But then where you get the sort of monarchical sort of originality here is in understanding the role of the father. So just with that four point sort of reading it, it says, however, the father is a sole ultimate slash fundamental divine person. So only one of the persons, the father, is God in the nominal sense. So the father is the one God. So what, what, I'm, what we have here then is because we have the first usage of the word God being equally um, predicated of the, um, each of the persons, we then have the father being the only one who has the word God in the nominal sense being ascribed to him. So he has the name God. And so why he has that is because he is the one who fits the criteria. So as I said before, um, to be God in the nominal sense, you are fundamental, you are ultimate, and you are divine. And the Father is the only entity who is that in the Trinity, or in all of reality is the only entity, because the Son and Spirit are equally divine, but they lack ultimacy, they lack fundamentality, because they are and they proceed from the father eternally the son and the spirit are they are eternally or whatever way you understand it they come from the father and so they are not ultimate they are ontologically dependent upon him yet the father is not because the father is the ungrounded entity he is the being who is absolutely fundamental um, and is uncaused, but he is the ultimate cause of everything else. And so why we can then call him the one God, the God in the nominal sense, is because he is the fundamental divine person. But the Son and the Spirit are derivative divine persons because they are derived eternally from the Father. And so what we then have is this idea then of the one God being the Father alone. Now, normally you would see with a lot of Trinitarians they would go with the viewpoint of the one God is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one, one in three. Exactly. Um, but I would say personally, that is not the historical viewpoint. What I'm saying now, I would argue, is the historical viewpoint that yeah. you see clearly taught in the creeds. Can, can, I, can I just... Um, yeah, 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 please. Hey, um, when I was an undergraduate studying yeah. this subject uh, at uni, uh, well, one of the key texts was J.N.D. Kelly's um, Early yeah. Christian Doctrines. This was yes. the fifth edition. I think it's probably uh, been through a few more. Um, the reason I mention this, firstly, um, if you want to... Uh, explore this subject further. Um, I do recommend this book. It's not the only book on this subject by far, but it, I found it very, very uh, accessible yeah. and readable. Early Christian doctrines. J. N. D. Kelly was an Anglican theologian. The reason I mention this is because, um, having studied this book um, several times, um, what Joshua was saying is is actually very accurate um, in terms of the early creeds and the deliberations of. Uh, the fathers, Christian theologians in the early centuries. And the language that we often hear today on the lips of, uh, of Christians, of Trinitarian language, is, uh, as Joshua actually accurately says, not quite the way it was expressed in the early Christian doctrines of the church. So um, just to reinforce what you're saying, Joshua, that you, you are very accurate, in, I think, in your description of these discussions in the early centuries in the creeds. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate that. Thank you for that, Paul. And I think it will be helpful just to sort of evidence it. Um, so I will just run through um, 
without any exegesis, but sort of just run through some passages. And then also um, some of the fathers, uh, the Cappadocians specifically on this matter. So, um, I mean, a lot of your audience and those who do study sort of the New Testament will, would have encountered these passages. But we have a few passages which are quite evident of this. And so the first one is John 17, 3, which says, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And then we have John 20, 17, which says, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Um, and then we have uh, in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Paul writes, for us, there is one God, the father and one Lord Jesus Christ. And then last one uh, from the New Testament is 2 Corinthians 11, uh, 31, which states, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he who is blessed forever. And I mean, there's other verses people can see. Let's say the, the, the famous one. Um, so let's say John 1. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. Now, it's quite interesting when it's using that term, the first usage of the word God there. It says yeah. in the beginning, the word was with God and then it was God. Now, there's always a clarification issue about what we're trying to make sense here. But then if we adopt this um, nominal predicative distinction, you then can easily make sense of what's happening here. Because what you have is in the beginning, the word was with God, hotheos, the God, referring to the Father. But then it's saying, uh, but the word was God. And so if someone wants to argue here, you can then say, well, obviously it can't be the nominal sense again. You can't say we're talking about the name here because we have two distinct individuals. And so you will have a clear contradiction, which is quite obvious. I think the writer wouldn't have wanted that. In the that case in, in the Greek, in, in that latter yeah. sense, it doesn't say hotheos a second time. It's without the, yeah. uh, so it just says God. So it could be translated a God. Yes, um, exactly. Uh, yeah. It doesn't have hotels, which in the first instance, yes. that word it does have in the Greek. I yes, mean. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So that, that shows the point then that you mm -hmm. have a name here, Hotheos, which is the name of the father. And then you have, yeah, exactly. It could be a God. And now I'm not saying this means when we're using the term God here, it has to be saying this being is consubstantial with the first being. I'm not, I'm not arguing for that at all here. So it could be, you know, understood in a different way, but it's saying predicatively there is a God here we have. So what we have is that sort of distinction in place. And another interesting thing is if people actually go through the New Testament and are looking for the person of the father, what people will encounter a lot of the time is a lot of the writers don't even use the word father. They just use God. And it's like the, the word, the name father, you sort of lose it a lot of the time because there is just an assumption that yeah. the being we're referring to here, the name is God. The name of this being is God. Yeah. Um, and then exactly as you, uh, as I was sort of bringing here, you then have when the son is, sorry, when, when Christ is spoke of, there's always a qualification here that we're talking about Kyrios or the Lord or something like that. And it's not this Hotheos, even though there might be minimal passages that you do have some application there of hotheos but it's very minimal but then 99 of the the usage of that word as a name is always for the father and so i i think you sort of see that in the new testament and then it's quite interesting um not to sort of uh bring too many stuff up there because i think it's always good to study each one at a time but just to further evidence the point uh you see the um the Cappadocians, who I was saying played such an influential role in the latter council of the fourth century, the Council of Constantinople, you see them sort of doing the same thing here, where, um, for example, we have Basil writing, um, 
And uh, yeah, sorry. So Basil wrote, uh, this was, I think it was on, on the Holy Spirit, his writing on the Holy Spirit. Uh, but though, if, sorry, if people want to look this up, uh, this is found in one of my articles. Uh, so Building the Monarchy of the Father, where I have references for everything. Which- I, I will link to um, all of Joshua's academic papers. They yeah. are available online in one handy yeah. location. And uh, yeah. I've already uh, uh, had a look. So and they're very readable. Um, so, yeah, just to I, I will link to Perfect. that in the description below. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So people can always just go and check it out. Um, but yeah, just reading it out. So we have Basil saying something interesting. here. He says, uh, there is one God and Father one only begotten son and one spirit. We proclaim each of the hypostases singly. We have never to this present day heard of a second God. I mean, that's quite interesting. Um, But I think no one will be trying to say that Basil is, uh, you know, trying to demean the son because what you have with with Basil and Eunomius and, and the latter sort of, debates that you have is that they're trying to, to, to affirm the homoousion. So when Basil is speaking here, he can't obviously be saying, we don't believe the son is divine. Uh, it, that wouldn't be what Basil's saying. It's obviously qualified by what he was saying before. He introduces God as the father. And so he's saying there is one God and father. And then he speaks about his son and the spirit. So we have an affirmation of something there. Um, and then there's another interesting thing uh, that's, Sorry, just one second here, just getting in front of me. Um, yeah, so we have uh, Gregory of Nyssa uh, writing something which where he says, the God overall alone um, has as a special property of his hypostasis, that is the father and subsists from no cause. And again, by the sign, he's recognized particularly. There's quite an interesting thing here. So he's saying the God overall has the property of being the father. Mm. So it's quite interesting. It's not the other way around that he says the father has the property of being the God overall. It's actually saying the God over all of reality has a special property that's unique to him, which is being the father. So there's an identification of the one God with him being the one who is the father. And then, sorry, the last one is just from Gregory Nazianzus, who I would say is probably the most clear in his monarchical position. And there are other um, philosophers who are very clear on Gregory as well. So, um, yeah, so Christopher Beely, who has a very good uh, work, um, which I would say for your audience to go and look, he has um, a great book on Gregory of Nazianzus and a great section on his view of the Trinity, where he really defends this strong view of the monarchy that you find in Gregory of Nazianzus. And, and so, uh, just Richard, quoting, Richard, uh, Greg, oh, sorry. yeah, I would say Richard, yeah, sorry, just the British um, uh, professor of uh, Richard Swinburne. Would he be yeah. another one? Very well known name. I, Interestingly, I would probably say no, even though I, I call myself a Swinburnian and I follow him in a lot of ways. <laughs> exactly. We do divert divert sort of our really? paths uh, when it comes. Okay. Yeah, so he would... Because uh, he's an Orthodox Christian as well. He clearly... Yeah, he is Orthodox, um, but he would affirm uh, what, what, what he does. And my, my, my PhD was actually on his view of the Trinity, but he affirms the Trinity to be the... the sorry, the... God to be the Trinity itself. Ah. Um, but something I did try and show in my PhD thesis is that when further um, sort of development is given to his view of the Trinity, you can get a monarchical position, but quite explicitly, he does identify the one God with the Trinity itself. Um, But someone who is Orthodox, who has played quite an influential role in my thinking as well, is a guy called Bo Branson. 
um, who I would say for your audience is great on, on the monarchy of the father as well. And he has videos and other writings. So that's a, an orthodox uh, theologian that people can look at. And a very, another very influential one is John Bear. Mm -hmm. uh, so B-E-H-R, who is an orthodox um, theologian. And he has a very, very uh, sort of clear sort of teaching on the monarchy of the father. So he's played quite a big role also Um uh, yeah, so if, if, if I'm I, I interrupted I interrupt you. You're about to yeah, yeah, sorry, sorry. Uh, We've uh, gone off somewhere, but yeah, uh, there are people that people can look at Christopher Beely, uh, Bo Branson, and John Bear on these issues. Okay. Uh, but just sort of reading uh, what Nazianza says. So he says, uh, One God, unbegotten, the Father, and one begotten Lord, his Son, refer to his God when he's mentioned separately, but Lord when he's named in conjunction with the Father. The one term on account of his nature, the other on account of his monarchy, and one Holy Spirit proceeding, or if you will say, um, going forth from the Father. So it's an interesting thing that he says here. He says that outside of his relationship to the Father, we refer to him as God. And then he says, well, why do we do that? Just sort of paraphrasing what he said here. Well, he's saying on account of his nature. So he is called God on account of his nature. That is the predicative sense, saying he is called, ascribed God because of his divinity. But then you have, then he says, the other on account of his monarchy. So the father, and that, that, that's in reference to the father, the father is called God in, in reference to his monarchy. The monarchy being him, being the sole principle in the Trinity, the uncaused cause of everything else. So what you have here is the word God being referred to the Father in that sense because of his position as the fundamental uncaused cause of everything else. Um, but also interestingly, saying he, he the Son is called Lord when he is in conjunction with the Father. He's not referred to as God. The, the God, the term God is referred to the Father when you are speaking of the Trinitarian persons together. And so that's quite an interesting point, again, that you have this one God being the unbegotten Father. And then just sort of the last point, and this is probably the clearest one you can see, and I've always had a problem, this was always a problem before I came to this monarchical position where I discovered it, was how do you make sense of the Niceno Constantinopolitan Creed, the Nicene Creed? How do we understand it as Trinitarians? Well, if you take the monarchical view, you literally have it clearly taught and, and you can understand it and explicate it very clearly because you have the first sentence being quite clear. We or I believe in the one God, the Father. Mm. Like there's a qualification here who of the one God is. Now, I could never make sense of this before I understood this position because you're saying, well, we believe in the one God, the Father, and then the one Lord, Jesus Christ. But why is the one God not referred to? We believe in the one God, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No, it's saying we believe in the one God, the Father, creator of all, and, and, and it goes on. But then it does use the term God for the Son later on, uh, true God from true God. But what it then qualifies, if you go through the creed, it's talking about his consubstantiality. It's talking about him being homoousios. He is true God because he comes from true God. But the understanding here is that he derives his nature. Why we can refer to him as God is because he's homoousios with the Father. So what we have here is the word God being utilized for the Son, not because he is fundamental, not because he's the uncaused cause. That's the Father alone. That's why he's the one God. 
but we have the word being used for the son in a right sense of the uh, right, rightly predicated of him because of his divinity, because he that, shares that, the nature. That, that's a very helpful um, uh, uh, exegesis um, of um, the creeds. And I, I think you're right. It's more accurate than the one I, I'm, I'm normally familiar with my own Catholic past. But I'm still yeah. not clear that are, are, are we therefore saying that the son is uh, a created being? Because if he, if the son is ontologically dependent on God, who is the uncaused cause and the fundamental ultimate reality, and the son is not those things, yeah. then does it not follow? One can use the language of divinity of the son, yeah. but he is created. Is that not ultimately Arianism? Because Arius himself, who was the, fa the famous sort of uh, nemesis of Athanasius in the fourth century, the Council of Nicaea, of course, also said that the son was God. But he also said that there was a time, apparently he said, uh, that there was a time when he was not. That was the kind of phrase that was used in English. Uh, there was a time when he was not. So in other words, ultimately, the uncaused cause of all that there is, the fundamental reality was God the Father. He brought the son into being who is called God. But he is a created being. So I, I'm not clear from your description, although yeah. it certainly fits uh, these early creedal statements more accurately, I, I grant you. But I'm still not clear why that's not a species of Arianism, if I maybe might put it so. Put it yes, yeah, yeah, no, no. Thank you for that. Thank you. Um, and thanks for the pushback. I think it's good for clarification purposes. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'll say clearly, I don't, I don't believe it falls into the Arian camp because even though Arius and even maybe Eunomius might have affirmed the son being God, when they were using that word, they were saying he's God, but we are not saying he's divine like the father. That's right. So when they're using, again, I think this emphasizes the ambiguity again of the word God, but when they were using the word God of the son, they were not affirming his true divinity. They were not saying he has the same nature as the father. But what the monarchical view is saying is that when we are saying the word God of the son, we are saying it truly, but what we are meaning is that he has the same divinity as the, the, the father. So there is no, there's no, um, gradation of divinity here there is not saying we have the father being fully divine truly divine you know having this divine nature and then the son doesn't really have that because that's what the uh, what the arians and arius and eunomius were saying because they were literally saying he is a created entity but if you are created then you lack one of the properties of divinity which is eternality but what we are saying with the son and the spirit is that they have the eternality because they are eternally proceeding from the father now, how to understand that then is, is itself a, a task, I would say, that someone needs to, to sort of, you know, think through and, and try and understand. But I do, and again, just pointing people to, to my paper on this matter, mm. um, I do provide a model of how to understand the eternal generation of the sun. Okay, you have offered an explanation there what, why your position is different from uh, area. So I, I, I see that now, and you've made a distinction, although I think there are commonalities, but there are differences. Yes as well, uh, given what you've just said. I accept that. But I still don't quite get how a being whose ontology, this is your, your word, uh, ontologically dependent on God, the uncaused cause, yeah. uh, and who proceeds from or is begotten from, yeah. um, is not a created being. Uh, because yeah. uh, if, he, if this being is not the ultimate fundamental uncaused cause, but it is caused by this fundamental being, 
that suggests, I mean, he may not be created in the sense that you and I are created, contingent beings in this universe that we inhabit, you know, born from fathers and mothers and so on. But to say that this other entity is nevertheless still begotten or caused ontologically, his very being comes from someone else, does sound like he's a created being in a perhaps a more rarefied sense, which I can't use, I can't find the language to describe, but at least there there seems to be some createdness about this entity, given his non, um, he's not God in the sense of B, although he's God in the sense of A. And and, and the other thing, just to labor the point a bit, is this sense of of separating out God A and God B is difficult, uh, I find it difficult to understand, because it seems to be saying that there, there is that one can speak of God in the sense of not being an ultimate, fundamental, uncaused rea- uh, uh, nature, uh, and but for me, it's a unitary in, in my habits of thinking, which may be wrong, but my habits of thinking is that God is all of a one. He, he he's not part of God or an, or a person of God. Can't be denied ultimate and fundamental uncaused aseity, aseity meaning the, you know, the essence, because then they wouldn't be God. They would be something else, less than God. They would be um, a lesser deity, like um, J- Justin Martyr in the second century spoke of the Son being a second God. And that language is used in early Christian theology. Um, anyway, there's some kind of r- random thoughts there, but I- I'm yeah. still not. No, no, th- th- this separating out of yeah. God from God. Uh, yeah. One God can be called God, and he has omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence. But then he's not the same as another person of the Godhead who has fundamental, uncaused cause, uh, causation of, of everything else. Yeah. And it seems to me to be splitting apart the divine attributes in a way that they might yeah. belong together as essential yeah. attributes in the oneness of deity itself. And to separate them out seems odd. Now, that's not, uh, saying it sounds odd is purely subjective. It's not an argument. It just seems strange to, to separate them out like that, albeit the way you've described it is reflected in the creeds and the discussions in the, in the early church. I, I certainly see that. So that would be uh, just an observation. Yeah, yeah no, thank um, you. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, a few things to, to say there. So um, what I've tried to show now, I was just saying before that, um, please, I would say for people to read the paper, um, just because I do tackle this question in quite a great amount of philosophical depth, okay. because it is an objection that can be raised against a monarchical position, because, and generally Trinitarianism, in that how can you call the son God, let's say in this predicative sense, hmm. if he lacks this arseity, if he yeah. is dependent upon the father. Now, yeah. the first thing I'll just want to say is, there needs to be a separation between the word created and the word caused. Something can be caused without being created. Because created normally assumes that there is a, it's a willed action. So there is a will. I am choosing to go and do this action, and I'm then causing this action. That would be a creative role. But something causing something, for example, if I have, um, let's say I have two balls and I... I hit one of the balls against the other, one of them will cause the other one to move, but we will never say it created it to move. I mean, that'd be a very weird sentence to say that ball created the movements. Yeah. Um, 
even though we said it caused the other one to do because it wasn't a willed action or it wasn't a free willed action, we might say. Mm-hmm. Um, so creation of something normally is a free willed free willed action where you might have alternative possibilities. I can choose to do this, create, or I can choose not to create. Now, what we say with the son firstly is that he is eternally caused by the father, but it's an act of essence in that the father, in order to be the father, must cause a son to exist. And there are reasons to do that. I, I would not sort of be, I will not say um, it's probably helpful going into the reasons why it's an essential action the father must perform. Um, but it is a, what is generally understood is that it's from the nature of the father. It's a necessitating action in that the father brings about the son and the spirit. And so what you have here is that it's not a creative act because the father doesn't freely will it in that he doesn't say, I'm going to choose to bring about the father, the son or not choose to bring about the spirit or not in the way that he does for creation. So even though the father causes, let's say the world to come about, that is a creative act because the father freely chose to do that. He freely chose to exercise his causal activity in that way. So that's why I would say, I would hesitate to say that the firstly, that the father uh, creates a son because it's a uh, necessary causal action in that it follows from the, the nature and the essence of the so, father. So God, by his very na- sorry, God the Father, by his very nature, begets the Son. It is yes. not a, it's not a, a conscious act. It is what he, it's his nature to beget yes. in that way. Yes, yes, yes. Oh. yeah. That's what I'll say firstly. And then the second thing, and this is sort of where it's quite important to understand, and what I did, uh, did in that paper was to try and show that our saiety is mm. not a property of divinity. So you can be divine without being our say. So what I was trying to say here, firstly, was to be God, this whole theos, the one God, you know, God in the normal sense, you are divine and you are our say. You are fundamental. You're not from anything else. So just, just, to, can... sorry, just to clarify here, the word aseity. By the way, I love this word aseity. Uh, and this is a total random point, completely off the subject. Um, I've noticed when I look this word up in dictionary, it's the kind of thing I do. Yeah. Virtually no dictionaries I've ever come across have this word in them, apart oh, wow. from the Oxford English Dictionary, which has okay. a very juicy definition of aseity. It's A-S-E-I-T-Y. It's a seriously exclusive word. And um, it has a very particular meaning, and it's beloved of theologians and philosophers yeah. of religion, and um, and I love it. But um, yeah. for you to say, for you to say that aseity uh, is a property of the father, but not yeah. of the son, and presumably of the spirit as well, is very interesting, and and it is kind of counterintuitive to other conceptions of God, where God per se um, yeah. it, uh, possesses aseity. You're saying no, 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 it's only the father who possesses aseity, meaning being in himself, self-existence is what kind of one definition of aseity, I should say. Yes. So, yeah. So, but I would affirm what you said in that, what you were just generally saying now, that the general understanding is that God, being God, you are, are say. I would say that because I'm saying, again, we need to mean, we need to understand what we you say. Mean the, when we you mean the father though, don't you? You mean the father. Yes. Take, yeah, so, yeah. 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 So that's what I'm saying. Clarification needs to be had. Yeah. I'm saying to be divine, you don't have to be our say, but to be God, when I when we're using this term in the most important sense that grounds monotheism, to be the one God, yes, you need to be our say and divine. But just to be divine, you don't need to be our say. Now, that needs to be argued for, and I do argue for that by, and the main way I show it, or I try to attempt to, to show it, is 
Arseity is something that I, and I would say other philosophers might argue for, being it's an extrinsic property of something. So as you can see, just, just for those who, who, who would watch this, um, in the second point in this summary on the, the PowerPoint, I say something here that each of the three persons exemplify the same essential intrinsic property of divinity. Now, divinity is an intrinsic property of something. So to be divine is to have an intrinsic, a certain intrinsic property, omnipotence, omniscience, perfect goodness. These are intrinsic properties of a certain entity. Now, a property can either be intrinsic or it can be extrinsic. What I try to show is that our seity is an extrinsic property of something. What do you so mean extrinsic? So what does this word, what does this word extrinsic yeah. mean? Okay, I mean, what, okay, yeah, yeah. Sorry, you've got, you've got these antonyms, intrinsic and extrinsic. So yes, what, what, yeah. what's the difference between the two words? Okay, so it's a very like contested word in philosophy, trying to actually understand what does intrinsic, extrinsic mean. Um, but generally intrinsic an intrinsic property of something is something that an entity has independent of its surroundings it doesn't matter how the surroundings is how your surrounding changes if you have this property irrespective of your of your surrounding right. you then have this property in an intrinsic is, sense is it synonymous with innate then i mean like getting boring i mean is it, uh maybe yeah but innate, yeah it might be, but um, okay. you might have something innately, but it can still be extrinsic. Um, uh, no, this is true. No, yeah. I, I take your so, point. They're not quite the same. So, yeah. 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 So, for example, uh, something like an intrinsic property would be the weight of something. Mm. So my weight, the weight I have, even though I might not be, you know, finding out what it is standing on a scale, I have it irrespective of my surroundings. I have it because of the quantity of mass that I have. Right. And that will then property of myself yes. um and it doesn't matter how the world will be like this is the weight that i have even though i might not be able to measure it um so that will be an intrinsic property that i have but an extrinsic property is something that you have that's dependent upon your surroundings so an example of that would be the property of being uh, so my what my my eldest daughter is called allison so being the father of allison that is an extrinsic property because i have it dependent upon my surroundings. So if Alison didn't exist, and let's say I didn't have any uh, any other daughters, I wouldn't have the property of being the father of this person. Yeah. So it requires the existence of something else in my surroundings. That's so that would be good. an extrinsic property, yeah. Okay. So basically- sorry, then, back, back, do, back to the original, sorry, uh, yeah. I interrupted you there to, to define the terms. Yeah. Can you then to just yeah. restate your point and now we understand okay. the language that's been used? Yeah, yeah. So what I then show in that, in that paper is- Actually, interestingly, for a lot of people, and I, I think I'm quite original on this point in that I haven't seen other people who have been in this debate. They don't sort of draw this distinction. But something that I try to do as much as I can in my, my, my sort of work is to utilize tools and techniques that are generally accepted in, in philosophy and try and apply them to philosophical, uh, theological issues. So that's right. sort of what I do in philosophy of religion and other philosophers try to do that as well. Using so what I've done- Analytical philosophy in, in the language of, yes. of, of analytical philosophy. The analytic uh, philosophy, yeah. On theology, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. So what I try to do then is bring what I try and bring, what is the general understanding of the intrinsic and extrinsic that's yeah. accepted widely in philosophy? Yeah. And then how can we bring it to sort of clarify this issue and okay. so i try and do that with this property of um our and 
basically I use um, a, a, a criteria that's been put forward by quite a famous philosopher called David Lewis. And he worked with um, a person called Ray Langton. So they wrote this, this sort of paper together, but um, Lewis is very famous in philosophy and, and sort of, they have this uh, criteria that um, it's utilized to make sense of if something is intrinsic or not. And I sort of apply that to this issue and I show how our saiety doesn't fulfill the criteria. And because it, because it doesn't fulfill the criteria, it cannot, in the general accepted philosophical sense of, of intrinsicality and extrinsicality, be classed as an intrinsic property. And so because it's not an intrinsic property, it doesn't matter if the son and the spirit lack it, because for them to be consubstantial with the father, they need to only share all of the intrinsic properties of him because that's what makes them God, makes them divine in the predicative sense. So, for example, if the son lacked omnipotence or lacked omniscience or lacked perfect goodness, then yes, there will be a problem. They won't be divine in the way the father is, because omnipotence, omniscience, and all those properties are intrinsic properties. So there's a requirement for them to have them to be divine. But it, extrinsic properties are not important. And this is quite, and I can show this in quite a clear way. Um the father, like right now, he has the property of being spoken of by Josh. That's a property that he has now, but that's an extrinsic property. But then because he has the property of being thought of by Josh, which the son doesn't have, if I'm not thinking about him, does that mean that he's not cons consubstantial? Of course not. You're going to always have problems because there will be so many extrinsic properties that okay, the father no, has. I understand what you say. It's just, it's just the, yeah. the, the very notion that a saiety is not a property yeah. uh, uh, or an attribute of God yeah. is, is, is very striking. And it, it's, um, rightly or wrongly, uh, 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 were not the view is correct on what I mean, it's very striking. And it's not a view I hear at all commonly expressed by Christians or, but, or Christian theologians, I should say, uh, at all, really. It, it seems to be quite a, 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 say, a very striking view, and it might strike some people as um, as unacceptable, because to deny a saiety to God, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, would seem to mean that they don't share, the uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit do not share the same intrinsic attributes, and they're not consubstantial or homoousios. Now, I know you defined it in a way which allows for that, but for... Um, it, it, it does, it's not the normal view that I hear, shall we say, yeah. um, uh, at all. I, you, you may agree. And this is just a, a, a kind of an empirical observation. It's not necessarily yeah. a, a truth claim. It's just I don't normally hear this view. But I would I would say something. Just I, I do agree with you. It might not be commonly like stated in this way, but I would say that the historical understanding, if you go to the Cappadocians, they are quite clear that our saiety is a property of the father alone. Mm. Um, because, I mean, they just define him as the uncaused being and being uncaused just entails being our say. But they really, I mean, they argue for the son and the spirit being caused by the father. And so it's quite clear in their works that they would affirm the father having this as his single attribute that makes him the father, as it was said before. But where, where I would counter is you then see a different affirmation in the Western form of Christianity exactly. that sort of comes from Augustine's reading of the Trinity. Yes. Where you then have, because uh, and, and other theologians have shown this, that actually the first time that the Trinity itself 
is referred to as God is in Augustine's work. And so you don't actually have at all um, the, the, far, the, the Son and the Spirit being, ref- sorry, the Father, Son, and Spirit as a Trinitarian sort of entity being referred to as the one God, the Arce thing. What you have is the Father, but then you have in Augustine's work, then this affirmation of the Trinity being the one God. And then because the Trinity is one God and is, is made up of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, they then must have equally the arseity of the Trinity. Mm. But then you, then you have other people later on, like John Calvin, affirming the arseity of the, fa- yep. the Son and the Spirit. Yeah. Um, but I would say, yeah, the historically grounded position of, let's say, when was Trinitarianism defined? Well, in the fourth century. Who played the massive and influential roles of defining it? Well, it was the Cappadocians and, and, and some of even the Latin fathers, so Hilary of Potiers and others. And you do see, you know, quite a clear affirmation that the father is the one who's the RSA being. But what I would say is that you don't have a clarification of that. You don't have, well, how can then the father be RSA and then the son and the spirit lack our sanity, yet they still be consubstantial. You don't have that. And so what I'm then trying to bring to the discussion yeah. is saying, actually, we can have a clarification of this in a non-problematic way by yeah. understanding the nature of our sanity. I mean, yeah. I, I, I can't speak, obviously, on behalf of Augustine or, uh, or, or any Catholic Christians or Latin Christians who don't subscribe to um, the monarchical yeah. Trinitarian approach. But they might say, they might not, but they might say that it implies a hierarchy within the Trinity where one of the persons in the Trinity is fully God in every sense. And the other two members of the Trinity are lesser gods by lesser. I mean, that they lack fundamental, a fundamental definition or fundamental attribute of deity. They lack that, but one of the members does. So the father obviously okay. uh, as, as a, yeah, a complete yeah. full or definitive maximal concept. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Put it this way as a maximal conception of deity, the father, mm-hmm. but the other two, have much less, uh, not ma- non-maximal um, attributes of deity because they lack yeah. this fundamental attribute, aseity, yeah. which Latin Christians would just see as essential to divinity. Yeah. They wouldn't see it as uh, exclusively the property of one member of the Trinity. Yeah. And this language of hierarchy and greater and lesser deities within it it may be historically accurate, and I certainly concede that it is in the Cappadocian Fathers, absolutely. But it seems it seems to strike against this sense of the consubstantiality and homoousios yeah. of the persons of the Trinity, because they're not all consubstantial if they are differing in these fundamental attributes. Yeah, now, but what, I, I, I don't really have a horse in this race, so to speak. But I'm, yes. I'm, I'm just kind of. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's, I'm looking at it. it seems to think how would a Latin yeah. Christian respond? They're thinking hmm, yeah. hierarchy, greater and lesser divinities. This somehow compromises the homoousion of the persons. Now I know you have given answers, but it's not as if you haven't addressed this. I'm not. It's not a criticism. It's yeah. just I'm just yeah. trying to frame it from a Latin view uh, as opposed yeah. to the Greek perspective you've offered. Yes. That's all. Yeah. But what what I'm trying to sort of push back on is saying, actually, there isn't any lesser or greater divinity here. There isn't any gradation when it comes to divinity. And also something you said of the maximal form of deity that the father has. I'm not saying that's not had by the son and the spirit, because what I'm trying to show is that our deity is not an attribute of divinity. So you can still be divine and lack our seity. So how, do you even reach that, for- how do you reach that conclusion, Bob? I, know, I, I hear you, but yeah. 
sorry, how do you reach the conclusion that aseity is not yeah. a central attribute of Because that, that's, that's what I was trying to say to you. Yeah, that's what I was trying to say to you. Yeah. So okay. by understanding the nature of the type of property aseity is, you can realize that it's not a great-making property because great-making properties are intrinsic properties. They're things that entities have in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm trying to show to you is if you then can take aseity I'll say to you to be an extrinsic property, then it cannot be by definition a great making property because great making properties are intrinsic properties. And so um, what I'm, yeah, what I'm then trying to say is because it's extrinsic, it's not great making. So the father and son and spirit are as great as each other. There is no lacking when it comes to the great making properties that they have. Because our satiety, even though the father has it alone, it's not a property that's classed as the great making properties that are given to beings who are divine. And so that's what I'm trying to show. So the way to argue for this is what type of property our satiety is, it's extrinsic. Because it's extrinsic, it cannot be classed as a great making property. And because it's not a great making property, the son can lack it and so can the spirit and the father have it. Yet there is no, um, there's no ontological subordination here. There is no gradation in, in deity. They have deity in the exact same way. And so um, the, what, what I'm trying to, to say something is, uh, the way I clarify it as well in the paper is, the father has divinity in a fundamental way, in an underived fashion. He has divinity. Mm-hmm. The Son and the Spirit have divinity, but they have it in a derivative fashion. But they still have the same divinity. It's just the way in which they have it. The Father has it in a fundamental sense. The Spirit and Son have it because they have it from the Father. But the thing that we call divinity is shared by each of them equally. There is no distinction there but where it there is a hierarchy and i will affirm a hierarchy mm. but i would say it's a relational hierarchy there is no ontological hierarchy here so what i mean by that is there's a relational hierarchy because the father is the cause of the son and spirit eternally so there is a relational superiority here but ontologically speaking there is no difference but, now the yeah. way I, I normally help people understand yeah. that is yeah. through an analogy yeah. in a family se- setting you have that in place you have relational hierarchies with a father and a son um, or a daughter, but you don't have an ontological hierarchy because they are equally human. But what you have with, let's say, a pet, you have relational and ontological. You have the the, the pet owner generally being the superior being to the, the, the pet, but there's also an ontological superiority in being a human and this thing being a, a pet, being a, an, another type of animal. But what we have then in the Trinity is that first one. You have a relational hierarchy in that the Father is the eternal cause of the Son and the Spirit, but there is no ontological hierarchy because they share the same nature, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so there is no then problem that the Father has our satiety and the Son and Spirit lack it because it's not something that you need to have to be divine. But I will affirm again, to be the one God, the one God that that grounds monotheism, you need to be our say. And this is something I'm really trying to emphasize. I think there is a lot of commonality, even with Islam and Judaism on this point. And I think with a monarchical view, we can draw closer to these two other Abrahamic religions. Because I would say Judaism and Islam affirm at least one sense of this quite, quite clearly. There is one God in Judaism, Islam, and Christianity because there is one entity who is the fundamental divine 
um, entity in all of reality. There is nothing that causes this being. Mm. So I would think, uh, and you can correct me on this, Allah and, and then in, in, in Judaism, Yahweh is the fundamental being. He's the ultimate thing. He explains everything else and he is divine. And so why we are monotheistic, let's say in Judaism and Islam, and then also now in Christianity is because we only affirm one personal entity to be fundamental and divine. That is the one God. But then where we then have a distinction between the Abrahamic religions is when it comes to the Unitarian and Trinitarian divide. It's not about monotheism. Monotheism is grounded on the one person who we call the father. And then in Islam and, and, Juda uh, and Judaism, there'll be a different term for it. But we are referring to the same entity, this one personal being who is the ultimate divine, divine entity. But where there is a distinction is in Trinitarian and Unitarianism. We are Trinitarians because we believe there are three divine persons. A Muslim and a, and a, Jew, a Jewish person is a Unitarian because they believe there is only one. And maybe in Islam and Judaism, you might not use the term person, but just sort of going with that. You would affirm there is one uh, divine person. In Christianity, we affirm three divine persons, but we each affirm equally monotheism in the sense that there is only one fundamental divine thing yeah why we worship and and all because even i would say is in, in a monarchical position there is only one entity who we ultimately worship that is the father because we worship the father through the son the son is the intermediary between us and the father and so yeah. is the spirit. And so everything is ultimately given to this one entity who we call the father. He is the one God overall, as Gregory of Nyssa was saying. And that's what grounds monotheism. But where we are then different from each other is by how many divine persons do we affirm? Trinitarians, three. Unitarians, who would be uh, Muslims and, and, and Jews, would be one. And so what we have here is not monotheism as being a problem, but it's being this Unitarian and Trinitarian <clears> distinction. <throat> Why should we? Yeah, no, that, that's answer. I think, as you mentioned, Islam is just worth pondering on. It's a couple of verses from the Quran, um, this 112th surah. I'm reading from Abdul Halim's um, translation in the name of God, the Lord of mercy, the giver of mercy. And this verse is absolutely key to what you're saying. Say, and this is obviously the English, I actually know this in Arabic, but I'm not going to recite it in Arabic. Say, He is God the One, God the Eternal. He begot no one, nor was he begotten. No one is comparable to him. Now, there's a footnote here in the, uh, uh, yeah. Muhammad, the, um, the, the translation. The word samad in uh, the second verse, God the eternal, the eternal, samad. Other commonly held interpretations include self-sufficient and sought by all. <clears throat> now, self-sufficient is another way of saying, possessing aseity. And this is a property of aseity. That is, um, God is uh, a samad. He is the eternal, the uncaused cause, as you define it in in B there. Uh, but th but this attribute, this characteristic, is exclusive to God, and only God, and there is no one comparable to Him. So any other entities <clears throat> um, are, are not God who don't possess that attribute. Now you say a divine being can lack that attribute and still be called God, and the Quran says, well, God does not beget anyone nor was he begotten so th this um this surah is a bit of what i call precision theology when it comes to a counter uh, a critique of the uh 
well, the, the various understandings of Trinitarianism, but certainly monarchical Trinitarianism. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. Islam would reserve its deity to God and only God. And if, if uh, it's an essential attribute of God himself, um, if he doesn't possess that, then he's not God and there's no one comparable to him. So, yeah, yeah it, so, I, and I think Judaism yeah. would probably agree with that. Yeah. And I would even say the comparability thing is even applicable in this view of the Trinity, because in a sense, hmm. the father is is incomparable. You can't compare him to the son in the certain sense, because he is the fundamental thing. So there is a way of existing that he has that the son and the spirit do not have. And so he is unique in that specific sense. But where there is that comparison, and obviously then Christianity diverts from Islam on this issue is, well, there is the begetting in which the, the father then gives the nature that he has to the son, but that's not giving his aseity or fundamentality, which obviously wouldn't even make sense. Um, so he's still unique in a sp specific sense of the word. He's the unique divine person who everything ultimately comes from. Um, but then obviously Christianity will then affirm that also includes a begetting of the son. But I would say the begetting of, of it doesn't necessarily make him God. What makes him God is that he is uncaused, fundamental and then he's the ultimate cause of everything else everything ultimately derives from him he is the explanatory stopping point when we are trying to explain something we get to him and him alone and so we are we're allowed that and i think that again i think even bridging a gap here and it's quite an interesting thing this is something bo branson brings out and so i i refer people to um to his work uh, but he actually brings out an interesting thing in islam where I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but the, the specific surah um, where it actually Allah says, "Do not, do not say I'm one of three, which is quite interesting. Um, now, with and it's quite interesting here that, and Bo actually shows this quite well that the Quran gets the Trinity actually correct, which a lot of um, a lot of Trinitarians are always hard on Muslims for saying, oh, look, he gets the Trinity wrong on this matter, blah, 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 saying he's one of three. No, we don't say that. Uh, we say God is the three, not one of the three. Yeah. But actually, it's interesting in this monarchical view, this shows then that monarchical Trinitarianism in wherever the Quran was revealed was being spoken about because Trinitarians are saying, actually, God is one of three. The God is one of three. He's one of these other two. He's with these other two entities. But Allah is then in, in the Quran saying, no, no, don't say that. But that then is implying that that's what Trinitarian was, Trinitarianism was saying. They were saying, Trinitarians were saying, God is one of three. He's the father. He's the father of the son and the spirit. It's interesting um, observation. Yeah. So it is, it's quite interesting that actually, even on that point, you get the Trinity being taught even, I mean, not taught by the Quran at all, but, but actually the correct view of the Trinity being found in the Quran and then obviously being negated. Um, but it's interesting that then this was actually what was being, being taught around that area and, and all those sort of things. And so what, what I'm then trying to just say to, to, to your audience is there is, there is obviously a broad category of what Trinitarianism is. You've, you can speak, and this can be a problem for Christians. Speak to any Christian, you might get a different view of the Trinity. Yeah. But, and that maybe is not a good thing. But what I would say is that if we get into, let's say, the nitty-gritty historical sort of work, which I think anyone should be doing when we're trying to understand what's the authentic position of a specific worldview, we shouldn't necessarily go on, what's the commonly held view? What, is, what does everyone say? 
Because what everyone's saying might not necessarily be what's the authoritative position on it. But if we're saying what is <laughs> what is the authoritative position? What is the position? What is the 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 the, the authoritative sources saying on the matter? Now, what I try to show very briefly, and, and this can be done more more explicitly um, and and ex uh, um, in an expansive fashion. But let's say we take obviously all Christians will affirm the authority of Scripture. Mm. What does Scripture say? The Trinity is like. Well, I think we have this here, this monarchical view. Um, but then, uh, and sorry, and I'll, well, I'll qualify that. Obviously, you'll have pushback about the divinity of the Son and the Spirit. But just affirming that for a second, if we're saying what form of Trinitarianism is taught in Scripture, mm. I would say you quite clearly see monarchical Trinitarianism. And if you have the monarchical lens on, you can understand so many verses a lot clearer than if you try and say the Trinity is the one God itself. You don't find that there in Scripture. Mm. But then if you're then going into the other authoritative sources, which I would say is the consensus of the fathers in the fourth century at least for Trinitarianism and the explicit teaching of the creeds, then what you have is, again, monarchical Trinitarianism being taught as well. So the authentic position, I would say, of or the authentic interpretation of Trinitarianism is what you have by monarchical Trinitarianism. And it also allows us to divert these philosophical problems because you don't have this squaring the circle thing. How is there one God, yet there are three gods, and how can they be this? And then you have all of these sort of issues that you have to jump through. But what we have clearly here is the one God is the Father alone. The Father, who is God over all, as Gregory was saying, he's the one God, the unbegotten, fundamental divine person. Yet there are two other divine persons who are eternally proceeding from him the son being eternally begotten by the father and the spirit is eternally spirated from him. And so they derive and share in the nature that the father has alone. Yet that does not negate the monarchy of the father. That does not negate his fundamentality and him being the one God. He is the one God who ultimate worship, praise and reverence is given to yet without <laughs> the son and the spirit, we would not be able to do that because they are the divine intermediaries between us and the father alone. Um, yeah, I think I think so, I mean just to I'm actually quite keen on Augustine because I, I I've, yeah. I've read his uh, his monumental work Confessions, which is a kind of autobiography. Yeah. It's extraordinary yeah. work written by a, a Roman citizen uh, in the fourth fifth centuries who very mm -hmm. aware of his own uh, unconscious even and uh, uh, his life and extraordinary work. But I, I will say he's a doctor of the church. He's he's one yeah. of the great. Um, uh, early church fathers, um, hugely influential, uh, particularly on medieval Western Christianity. You mentioned Calvin, uh, Martin Luther, of course, uh, was a big fan of um, Augustine. And right to the 20th century, people like Karl Barth in Switzerland and, and others. Uh, I mean, uh, Augustine, perhaps along with Thomas Aquinas, have been probably the two greatest um, luminaries in the West in terms of Christian theology. So um, although I think your description uh, of um, monarchical Trinitarianism fits some aspects of early earlier theology. You mentioned the Cappadocian Fathers and others, for example. There is another strand which just sits there stubbornly and won't go away as well, um, <laughs> and 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 is hugely influential on subsequent. I, I mean, you, you're a lecturer at the London uh, School of uh, Theology, uh, which, as an evangelical um, uh, institution, certainly would um, I, I would imagine be very keen on Calvin. Uh, and yep. Martin Luther, almost yes. by definition, <laughs> um, because it's a Protestant seminary, uh, Protestant college. So um, I just want to kind of 
wave yeah. the flag a little bit for Augustine because I don't think he's so marginal a figure yes. um, that, that you, what one might have got to, to understand from what you were yeah. saying. I still think he's hugely yeah. influential. Yeah, I agree with you. And, and, and the interesting thing, though, and this is something, again, that Bo brought to my thinking when we've had conversations, um, he was actually saying an interesting thing. And this is something that I myself will need to check further. And I would say your audience, not just to go on testimonial um, basis, but, but to look this up as well. Uh, maybe Lewis Ayres is a very good um, scholar on him who might have some things to speak about this. But something Bo says is that actually um, Augustine, even though he uses the term the Trinity, sorry, the God for the Trinity, he only used that for apologetic purposes in his De Trinitate. He only used it sparingly for apologetic purposes. But in other works outside of that, and actually I think in the De Trinitate itself, and then other works as well outside of that, he actually affirms the monarchy of the Father to giving the Father the, the, the um, refer referential term of being the one God. Um, but then you have this sort of switch in the De Trinitate for apologetic purposes to try and ward off the subordination of the Son and the Spirit that was happening in where sort of Augustine was writing. Um, you have sort of this subordination go coming in again for the Son and the Spirit, but it's trying to say, no, they are equally God. The one God is the Trinity itself. Um, and so... It's quite interesting. And this is, again, something that I think people will have to go and look at and myself even in deeper because I haven't done a lot of study on Augustine. But it might be actually that what happened later on was that where there was a running away with certain things of Augustine. I think you find this quite clearly with Augustine actually on points that you'll have some theologians affirm a lot of what on one point that Augustine says something and then opposite theologians will be affirming something else that you have. So you'll have Catholics yeah. affirming something on Augustine and then Protestants utilizing Augustine to affirm something else. And so yeah. then my hypothesis would be, then let's say the, the influence of someone like Thomas Aquinas, who has had a massive influence in the West, who I would say clearly isn't a monarchical Trinitarian. You then have that, that sort of, I would say overplaying of, of Augustine on a certain strand, but not necessarily saying that Augustine himself would have just said, that's actually how we correctly understand the Trinity. And I think actually, I'm, I'm just, I think I can evidence this. Um, something that Lewis Ayres, who is a very influential fourth century um, scholar, um, has shown um, in his work on Trinitarianism and Augustine itself, um, mm. is that actually there was a unity of belief between the pro-Niceans. And that includes not just the Cappadocians, but also um, Augustine in the West. And so what you have is that De Renion thesis later on, that there was a divide between West and East on the Trinity. And then, you know, th there was always a, there was a Western form of Trinitarianism and Eastern form. But what Lewis Ayres and, and Michelle Barnes and other individuals have shown is that actually there was a unity of belief on Trinitarianism. Now, if that is true, then it's very strange that you can have the Cappadocians and the East and the, the Creeds all saying this view, but then Augustine is over there saying something completely different. Like, it just doesn't seem to fit with his thesis that there was a unity on this matter on the Trinity. Um, and then also, I mean, if that's so, then why would you also have this affirmation of... of um, of uh, of the the uh, the Constantinopolitan Creed by Augustine, you'll still seem to have a problem there. So 
My thesis is that actually there might be a way to say Augustine did affirm this view, but then apologetic reasons you have this other view coming out, which then played a big part. And I think actually another thing, sorry, I'm speaking quite a bit, but another thing could be the influence of the Athanasian creed as well, which has played a massive role in the West. Yeah, yeah. And then you do have sort of the clear view, yeah. the one God being this, the Trinity and all this sort of things. Yeah. And so what you then have is this creedal sort of position, which a lot of people did believe had a great authority until understanding it wasn't from Athanasius. Yeah, it's not actually um, by Athanasius anyway. Maybe yeah, it's not, it's not by Athanasius at all, but it had, yeah. for a certain long period of time, great influence in the West. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, well, it's, it's you have this creed. Does. It's part of the Church of England's creed. It's yeah, part exactly. Of the, uh, Roman exactly. Catholic Church still acknowledges exactly. it. Yeah. It's not going anywhere, but I agree. It's yes. prominence is, is perhaps yes. far less now than it used to be. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So you have the Athanasian Creed, you have the important work, which is the De Trinitate written by Augustine. You then have people like Aquinas in, in the West. You have then in the in the Protestant West, Calvin and, and others with their own Trinitarianism, which is clearly not monarchical, playing a massive influence. Um, but what a lot of scholars now would say more in the Eastern side of things, like John Baer, are trying to say is actually, let's get back to the authoritative things here, which the authoritative things for Trinitarianism is literally the creeds and then the consensus of the fourth century fathers who played that massive role mm. in forming Trinitarianism and defining it. So when we do that, we then have this sort of, you know, view coming out here. And I would say it's a rediscovery and it's something which I think needs to be further focused on. I'm not saying that there's not, there's not problems and issues that can be raised with it, um, but I think we should say, let's go back to the historical, historical text. What do they say? And then that should feed into our understanding of Trinitarianism. And maybe this might play, might play a part. So, for example, uh, which is showing my own cards, but this is strange, but I'm a Roman Catholic myself. So oh, I didn't saying know all that. of this. I didn't know yeah. that. <laughs> So saying, Hang on, saying you're, you're, that, you're a lecturer, you a Roman Catholic are a lecturer at yeah. <laughs> um, one of Europe's leading evangelical theological. Yes. Churches. Yeah. Which is oh, I'm a weird guy. Wow. Orthodoxy <laughs> Trinitarianism. Do they know this? Do they know that you're a Catholic? No, yes. Yeah. No, no, they do. They do. Um, no, but I think what they play, what they do at LST is they, they would affirm more the evangelical interdenominational sort of aspect of things mm-hmm. um, more than sort of saying, this is just a evangelical Protestant. They'll more, normally say evangelical, into the denominational college and then whatever that means sort of <laughs> right. falling okay. into that no, I'm, but, I'm, I'm very happy you are but yeah. I'm yes yeah um, but, but yeah I was just trying to say something so even myself it is a cognitive dissonance situation here with mm. oh well I'm pulled over this side with what I'm seeing with the history of the matter but then obviously these authoritative things in Roman Catholicism are sort of pushing in this direction yeah. but it's sort of trying to come to that middle position on the matter which is which is the the challenge yeah no, oh, that's cool. Well, that's absolutely fascinating. Well, uh, thank you very much indeed for no, uh, sharing your you. expertise uh, and your clarity of exposition, if I may say, on monarchical Trinitarianism, because it's very easy to get uh, tied up in jargon and uh, obscurity, I think, when it comes to reading the fathers. Uh, and uh, I said earlier on, um, I, I recommend, do you recommend Early Christian Doctrines by James? Definitely, definitely. And, and not just for Trinitarianism, other doctrines um, sure. very important doctrine of Christianity. I would say that should be a reference text for any person. Um, he yeah. did great work there and he's very objective on the matter um, on, on many issues. And I think people would definitely, they should go to that text and then read that in light of others as well. Yeah. 
Mm, cool. Uh, that's very, very good. Well, uh, well, as I say, thank you very much, Josh, uh, for your time, your expertise. Um, I'm sure this will be your your uh, talk today will be a, a resource uh, for people, particularly people from other religions, like, dare I say, uh, Muslims, for example, are trying to understand where Josh is coming from on this, um, because uh, there are many videos of you uh, having very respectful, irenic dialogue, uh, even debate with Muslims at certain parts of London, uh, and uh, which you can see on YouTube. Um, actually, I do recommend those because they, they are a model, I think, of what good debate should be, rather than the usual um, well, I won't go into that. They're usually quite different, <laughs> yeah. as you as you know as well as I do. Um, yeah. So, uh, no, I think this would be a great resource uh, for people to try and get their heads around um, the Trinitarian theologies because they're different understandings of the Trinity, as yeah. we as you've been saying. So, um, um, in conclusion, are, are, in terms of your own work in theology, yeah. are, are you are you writing a book or have you written books? Are you working on anything? Yeah. yeah so, at the moment, um, yeah. So there's there's two two books at the moment with publishers. So I have one book that is more sort of, I think is going to get accepted. And the other one probably have to be revised my proposal, but the, the, the first book I'm, I'm sort of focusing on the moment um, is nothing to do with Trinity. So it's the existence of God. Um, so I've, I, I'm trying to put some new arguments. I would call them new sort of in a way, new philosophical arguments for the existence of God. Um, so that's, yeah. And for those of, again, you were saying, um, about people going to my work. So I'm, I've already done that with some published work already, um, where I've put forward some, some arguments, written some papers. So I have two papers called fundamentality, the existence of God and grounding and the existence of God. And these are sort of, uh, metaphysical arguments for God's existence. And so I'm sort of bringing that into sort of a monograph and putting that together to sort of put forward what I would take as a, a certain case for God's existence. And then the second book is um, on the Trinity, um, where I'm trying to sort of flesh out this view um, right. as clear as I can, because um, I have some works. Um, so I have this monarchical sort of thing going on here. And I have another paper, which is going to come out later, where I actually take a Latin view and I try and show how a Latin view can make sense. Right. And so what I'm trying to do then in the monograph is put this together um, somehow in my crazy mind. And uh, yeah, that's how the monograph is going to be. And then also um, there's a paper that I wrote last year, which is on the Trinity and trying to show you might be, might be um, you, you know, you'll definitely know. So the love argument for the Trinity. Oh, yeah. And I try to put forward a new love argument in that paper. So it's called love and the necessity of the Trinity for those who are looking for it. Um, and then I'm going to develop that in the book as well. So I'll be putting that. So it's sort of, um, a clarification of my model of the Trinity and then an argument for the veracity of it. That's the book, uh, the second book as well. Yeah. I wish you well with those uh, endeavours. And um, maybe one day, God willing, you might want to come back and talk about your arguments, the existence of God uh, yeah. in, from your work. That might be uh, a, great. Work, a great interest. Yeah. Well. So, no, uh, no, I think, I th yeah, thank you. And I, yeah, I just want to give you a great, th um, big thanks because I really enjoy the, your 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 manner of speaking and, and your your interview skills are great and bringing out the really important points. And yeah, thank you. And it's always, and um, I, yeah, I really value value our dialogue and, and our time that we spent together in other places because uh, you've always been a great representative of Islam um, and I've really enjoyed and learned a lot from you. I don't know about so, that. Yeah, but thank you. But it's very kind of you anyway to say, no. say such things. No, thank you. All right. Well, thank you, Josh, uh, again. And um, 
Uh, as I say, uh, yet again, I will link to um, your academic papers, which are available online. I will link to them in the description below if you want to follow up these issues in greater academic depth. But they are very much academic works. It doesn't mean they're not accessible, but they are academic works rather than popularist um, treaties on, on the subjects. But they're definitely worth having a look at, I think. So uh, thank you very much, Josh. Until thank next you. time. Take care. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. Thank you. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.